and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I'm Dr. Amber Wise, your lead moderator for the group discussion today, and I'm very excited to be here and to be your guest host for today's episode. As usual, we're joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora and Dr. Jehan Marku. Welcome, guys. Hello. Morning. They're the creators of this podcast, and to mix it up a little bit today, I'm going to be taking Jehan's normal role uh, as the host, and he's going to be in the hot seat, um, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> uh, we're also joined uh, today by two new contributors, uh, Dr. Julie Kowalski of Kowalski Science Support. Uh, Julie is one of the awesomest and nerdiest analytical chemists that I've ever known. Um, she and I have known each other as, as chemists for years, and you're always the one that I think of when an analytical question arises. So I'm glad you're here today. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. And we're also joined by Dr. Miyabi Shields of Real Isolates. Uh, Miyabi and I were introduced, I think, via Nigam and our work with the American Chemical Society. Miyabi also has a newish podcast called Smoke and Science with Riley Kirk. And I just listened to a few episodes and it's really great um, science discussions. So if you're interested in another podcast, I recommend that. Miyabi is doing really interesting development work. Um, I very much enjoyed our discussions that overlap with my graduate work in lipid membrane bilayers and and now bringing in some cannabinoid um, science in that realm. So that's been really interesting. Um, Welcome to the show, Miyabi. Hey, excited to be here. So we have a great show for you today, listener. For our popular science and news section, we have an article about the promises and perils of psychedelic healthcare from a recent New York Times Well section article. Uh, We also are going to ask the question, is the cannabis industry doing fundamental math all wrong when we calculate total THC from a recent article in the Cannabis Scientist magazine? We're also going to discuss an article that investigates uh, if CBN is actually good for sleep or not. Um, It's something I'm going to call a canecdote that maybe the research that's out there doesn't necessarily hold up, but something that we hear all the time. And for our rapid science conversation, we have two articles, one that quantifies how psychedelics use might alter metaphysical beliefs from nature scientific reports. And also a paper from Science Advances that finds the real origins of cannabis around the globe. And you might be surprised, listeners. We're going to end this episode with a classic game with a new name called Psychedelics Research Psychout. And we'll be back in about 30 seconds. time for us to discuss some news and popular science articles. The first one we're going to talk about today is entitled The Promises and Perils of Psychedelic Healthcare from January 5th, New York Times article in the Well section. 
This is a quick summary, gives a high-level overview of various uh, psychedelics. I think they cover four different um, psychedelics and kind of what the emerging studies might be. Each drug um, has this really brief what it does, potential mental health uses and risk section uh, that are about one or two sentences long. I'm going to start with saying that like my initial take on this was a little bit blah, like another bland article that doesn't really tell us that much new or interesting. Um, But then I started reading the comments thread in the article, which was, I found much more interesting. Um, And, you know, given the presumably really large readership of this article in New York Times, I thought it would be kind of interesting to get other folks' opinion on this. So I'm going to start with Jehan. You've done a lot of neuroscience work and follow the psychedelics industry pretty closely. What do you have to say about how well this author covered this topic? And if you, you know, had to write this, would you have made any major changes? Um, you know, uh, yeah. Sh- I mean, if I had more word space, um, sure, I would have loved to make changes and cover things like ibogaine and ayahuasca and all these other lesser known things that people are using. And what troubles me is the lack of citation. And maybe that's just my research hat, but this is, you know, the New York Times, they do science journalism. Um, the author, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure how to say the name, but but Kat Eschner has published a lot of science journalism, freelance writers have some cool stuff um, over the years. And this just seems to not be as cool as some of the other things she's written on in the past. Like what can Dr. Frankenstein teach us about science today? That was one of her articles in the past. Good stuff. This is it does seem a little mild because it's um you know the the editor in chief probably put a title on there you know here's what you need to know I'm like oh only 200 words about LSD yes I can throw away all those Stanislav Grof textbooks and like all these like thousands of pages of pharmacology on LSD because I just need to know 200 words about it um, and so I think that some of the descriptions of the drugs do a bit of a disservice um, and if I never have to read the phrase again tune in, tune on, drop out, or whatever the hell that is, I'd be so happy. That guy behind that phrase has gotten way too much play. He was not that pivotal of a figure. There I said it. Uh, not that important. I wish people would stop saying it because it helps to discredit like the science of psychedelics. It, it was not a good time. He was not a positive influence on psychedelic science. And so all they describe about LSD I'd like to read. Okay, all this, all they say is LSD users have reported feelings of bliss during their trip, being able to see sound and having mystical experiences, as well as a sense of closeness with others. That's what LSD does. Um, I found that for me, I think at times it fell a little short. I did like that it gives a big overview. I like that it talks about the risks, um, but I just feel like there, there was a potential here to do something else beyond, you know, hearkening back to the 1960s. Um, I think that what it misses here is kind of the essence of psychedelics, right? Um, like LSD did nothing in early animal work. It was actually, you know, unremarkable is how it was described by Swiss chemists. And so, um, you know, one of the things that they say in the article is that um, psychedelics aren't simple compounds. And I'd say, actually, if you ask someone who's done research in the field, they are simple. They're very simple. We are complex. 
<laughs> what that's the complexity not that you know they're complicated that the molecules themselves are very complex they're everywhere derivatives are everywhere they're widespread throughout the world and every culture has used psychedelics of some sort what is complex is the mechanism that explain um their therapeutic qualities what is complex is our response and perceived response to them so um you know i think that the article could have done a little bit better to balance the risks and what's the takeaway here? What's the application? Is there a solution um, to um, the risks or, or mitigating those risks of psychedelics? So it did feel, as some of the people in the comments said, a bit like, you know, um, a, a, a bit like, I don't know, uh, reefer madness type stuff. Um, I guess I'd say is like these descriptions of psychedelics in this article, you know, they're minimalist and it's a short article. And I'd say it's like if you wrote an encyclopedic description of the earth as mostly harmless and that was your entry, that's kind of what this is uh, about psychedelics. Right, right. Well, yeah, that that makes sense. Um, And I think, you know, as more and more articles get written about psychedelics use, uh, it makes people think that these treatments are available, that the stuff is easily accessible. Um, Nigam, is that, is that true? Are these types of treatments out there? Can people access this easily? Um, you know, how do you, how do you see this like um, emerging industry sort of coming about when we read articles like this, the New York times? Totally. <laughs> I, I can address that. So uh, there's two buckets. One bucket is through a compliant health insurance covered mechanism. And then there's the other bucket, right? So I'll talk about the, the first one first. So um, on this list, uh, like Jahan said, I've got four uh, psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, ketamine, LSD, MDMA. So just to run through these, um, and, and it touches on this, psilocybin is uh, going through multiple clinical trials right now. Uh, they're saying it's going to be uh, most likely available medically in the next five years or so. Some places like Oregon, you know, maybe we'll see it sooner on, on the state regulated side. Actually, it's supposed to be 2023 in Oregon. Um, so the answer there is no to the public or through a common, you know, prescription through your doctor or, or a, you know, uh, walk in treatment. No, it's not. Um Ketamine, actually, if I, if I was going to rank these in order, I probably should have started this in a different order. Ketamine is the absolutely most available of these to the uh, consumer through the you know medical healthcare system. Uh, you know, ketamine has been legal for some time as an anesthetic uh, and for some other uh, kind of niche uses, but just in the last several years, and and actually the it was one of those things of the pandemic. Uh, kind of boosted was the availability of ketamine to the point where now there's, uh, I'm not sure if it's every state, but in a lot of places with a prescription, you can actually get ketamine lozenges mailed from your pharmacist as prescribed by your doctor uh, for, for a variety of things. Uh, I believe the leading things are related to depression, anxiety, uh, the, those type of issues. Um, keep going down the list. LSD. Uh, there are some, uh, studies going on with LSD and, and several for-profit companies uh, developing it as a treatment for multiple uh, um, issues, but it's um, 
not legally available anywhere that I'm aware of, and, and it's behind psilocybin in the, uh, you know, to become legal through the, the medical system. Uh, MDMA, um, I would actually set next to psilocybin. I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with uh, MAPS and the work they've been doing. Uh, I believe they have, uh, is it the phase two? Maybe it's even phase three. I mean, they have clinical trials ongoing. Uh, so of this list, MDMA and, and psilocybin are the ones that are come through the medical system the, the soonest in the next, let's say, several years. Um, I just want to shout out a couple others, as Jehan did, that aren't on this list. I thought it was interesting. Um, they left DMT off, and DMT is being widely studied. And then additionally, uh, maybe this is a good transition to, to the other bucket, uh, there's this issue with the Sonoran Desert Toad and, and harm to, to ecological environments um, with people just going out and, and poaching these, these toads um, that just happen to have this 5-MeO-DMT uh, as part of their biology. So anyways, um, others, as Jehan mentioned, ibogaine uh, is being used. So everything I said so far is about um, you know, the United States and uh, healthcare system. Um, but if you go to other countries, like people, you know, we've seen this for a long time, ayahuasca retreats and places like Peru and Brazil and stuff like that. So for folks willing to go to other countries, uh, I've heard of folks that, um, will travel from the U S to go to another country to get ibogaine treatment, uh, to deal with an addiction issue or, uh, Jamaica recently has made, when I say recently, I mean, the last couple of years. Uh, as this psychedelics, you know, third psychedelics renaissance is happening, they've gone out of their way to make friendly laws for um, cultivation and consumption of mushrooms. So there's like a lot of mushroom retreat businesses booming legally in Jamaica and, and those kind of things. So uh, last thing I'll say um, is I just want to talk about the other bucket for a minute. So this is a bucket that, you know, we've been in in the United States in the prohibition era where everything I just said didn't apply bar and ketamine. Uh, all of these substances were just illegal schedule one, schedule two, um, the manufacture, the possession, the usage, it, it was all illegal. So, um, some of those are still in that bucket now, but what we see is this article talks about microdosing. Uh, we do see it. Um, I mean, I live in the Bay area. It's, it's pretty common, uh, to see folks, especially with, uh, psilocybin mushrooms and with LSD, uh, microdosing and claiming it does this for productivity. It does that for clarity. It does this for X, Y, and Z. And, um, I, I can't talk any longer, uh, without monopolizing time, but, uh, wow, I could just rant for a while about my thoughts on that and about how this article kind of misrepresents some things on that. But I think Jayhan did a pretty good job at, at <laughs> nailing the article on misrepresentation. So, uh, right. I'm happy well, to pass think, the mic on. You know, now, talking so. about the, the, products that are available or not available legally or otherwise. Um, you know, Miyabi, you work in the product development space. Do you see this industry as evolving similar to the cannabis space where we might be able to just walk in off the street and get some microdose liquid at some point? Or is this more, you know, the medical realm where you have to have a lot of documentation and with a doctor's um, assistance or, or overview to access? 
Okay, so I'm going to answer this question first with my vision, which is what I think that it should be. Um, I very strongly feel like the two buckets that Nigam was just describing um, of access, of how people are going to be able to gain access to these treatments, because so far the research that's being done in psychedelics shows that they have very unique therapeutic profiles that can be really, really beneficial to a huge population of people who currently don't have any options or are resistant to the pharmaceutical treatments. And right now, the two buckets of of access are through either clinical trials, which are still in their experimental phases and are very small populations, even though the trials can be large, like an an N of a thousand is a large clinical trial population, N of 15,000, that's still a small percentage of people uh, relative to the number of people who struggle with anxiety or depression, PTSD. Um, And that is one bucket. And the other bucket of access right now comes from these retreats that require thousands upon thousands of dollars. Um, And more than just the money, it requires time to be able to go and travel and get access to to these products. And my vision for how I would love to see the industry evolve would be to integrate within the cannabis industry because the way that we have cannabis tested, and as both you and Julie know in detail, the way that we analyze cannabis is incredibly rigorous. The way that we track the metric system for cannabis from seed to sale is very, very rigorous and is we have it built in. We have a system and an industry right now that is built in with these high levels of testing, these metrics of recording. Um, it Can things always be improved? Yes, they can always be improved. But my vision would be that we would see them um, in a very similar way to cannabis. I don't think that it's possible. It's probably not realistic legally for them to be truly intertwined. Although I would argue that there's no reason in my mind for them not to be because people regularly use cannabis with psychedelics for increased therapeutic effect. And it's mostly coming down to regulation of dosing, which we already do with cannabis. Like we already regulate how many things people can can buy in, in each dispensary. And that would be the vision because that would be, in my opinion, the most access. It would require decriminalization. So the psychedelics could no longer be classified as criminal to to possess. And then um, you know, a lot of regulation and and paperwork and whatnot. But I, I think that would be the way that the most people could gain access to things in a very safe and rigorous way that, that we're being tested for, for purity. And um, what I think realistically may happen in the short term is that it's going to go the route of, um, you know, being prescribed by a doctor, which is also perfectly okay. Um, it just limits access because, you know, healthcare in America isn't perfect. It's far from it. And I don't see that changing anytime soon, which means that it's going to be a huge barrier to access for people either through their health insurance or through the ability to pay for access to health insurance, which I'm very fortunate, but I have spent times in my life where I haven't gone to the doctor because I couldn't afford the copay. And that's a reality for a large number right. of people. So um, I think and not that- to mention, yeah, and, and that's um, not to mention the number of doctors that have any experience um, prescribing or, you know, treating patients with these types of things is pretty small at this moment. So exactly. There's gonna be a big there's gonna be a big education barrier that 
that stigma we're currently facing with canna- cannabis as well. So <laughs> I, I think that the vision is that people would gain access to this because I think there's overwhelming promise and that it has to be done in like a safe and rigorous way, but that the reality is that it will probably move first through the the medical um, the medical side of it. And then we'll have to see, although I, I would argue that decriminalization is probably the number one step that should happen everywhere, first and foremost, because I, I won't go there. That's a political thing. Let's move on. <laughs> it's, so, it's so easy to get that done. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's but, not, it's, it shouldn't be a crime. It shouldn't, <laughs> it shouldn't be a crime. We already have crimes for probably driving and operating things under the influence, which we already do have crimes. That itself is a crime. Other than that, anything that you were to do when you were on a drug that is a crime, like rob, like robbery or assault or any of these negative things, which I'm not even saying are associated with any of these molecules at all. <laughs> but for the people who believe that they are, uh, you know, those are already crimes like on, on their own. And statistically... <laughs> People are just hanging out in a park on their on their own or going about their regular day. And in the in the case of microdosing, it's way less invasive than like a couple beers. Or right, right. Well, Miyabe, what you're ignoring is right. the uh, puritanical <laughs> the moral, crime, the, you know? the moral so. ethical crime of of choosing what you what you crime. put in your body. Yeah. When in reality, most people go to McDonald's and don't think twice about. <laughs> Right. Right. Well, you brought up a good point about the rigorous testing that we currently have in the cannabis space. And so that's kind of where I want to bring Julie in here. You set me up for a good segue of, you know, what kind of standards would you like to see one, you know, if and when these types of products are available, you know? Well, um, good question. And I think I'll use the buckets as well. So I think, I think if it's going to be prescribed and it's pharmaceutical and, production is done in a way that's pharmaceutical grade, then, you know, we, we have to have the same testing like we do with any other pharmaceutical, right? If it's more of a natural product, um, and even if that would be prescribed, I think that that, at least for an, from an analytical chemist perspective, that really throws things on its head. Um, we're immediately talking about a product that by its very nature, is not necessarily going to be consistent. Um, and I'm just talking about from the, the testing perspective, not even from the effects it may have on somebody that's using it, because I don't do that part of science. Um, but natural products is really hard, and people forget that if we are dealing with mushrooms, if we're dealing with you know cannabis, anything that's not kind of synthesized in a controlled environment, that the way we test it is not going to be the same and maybe not have the same confidence than a, a really well-characterized product. So um, so one of my pet peeves is people using the word potency uh, when they talk about any, any of these, when they're referencing a concentration of a particular compound, right? we're looking at the concentration of a particular compound. We're not talking about potency or dosage or any sort of biological effect, right? We're simply looking at concentration. Um, And then you say, okay, well, like I'm interested in this particular active in this natural product, which is great. And then you want to test, you, you harvest, you know, 10 pounds of mushrooms 
and you say, okay, well, now I want to look at psilocybin and that, those mushrooms. Okay, what's the sampling? So every mushroom in there is going to have the same amount? Probably not. So how do we put a number on that? Do we test every mushroom? So when people, when I talk to people, especially sometimes when I talk to regulators, um, and I say, they're like, why are the, um, or clients, and they say, why when I send something to be tested here and I send it somewhere else and I get two different numbers? Well, I'm like, probably because they're two different numbers. So I said, if I hand you a bag of M&Ms, they're all different colors. And I say, tell me what color all of the M&Ms are in that bag. What are you going to tell me? And that's what they're trying to make us do. So natural products to me is really challenging in any time you're talking about it um, in terms of something people are going to use. It makes it much more difficult testing wise. Um, if you're going to extract or th synthesize sort of more of a pure molecule, then I think we have much more control over the testing and the quality at that point. Um, anything again, that's natural, like kind of a natural product, you know, I always have big concerns about um, how that will be adulterated, potentially um, how it's grown, microbial contamination, pesticide contamination. There's a lot of other aspects to a natural product or something that's naturally derived versus something that's kind of purely synthetic. So in my mind, those are two different two different things in terms of the testing schemes that you have to do. And quite frankly, sort of the target or the data quality that you're really able to achieve. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely a good point. And it's very easy for the non-scientists to not know that at all or, or forget about it, right? When, when we discuss these types of um, treatments or, um, you know, products that we might think about taking for whatever reason. Um, and I, I do, I also have the same pet peeve of people using the word potency completely incorrectly um, in the cannabis space. And now I think also the psychedelic space. Um, and that kind of brings me to our next article, honestly, which is uh, talking about um, this this issue of how we calculate total THC in the cannabis industry. Uh, the, the title of the article is Totally Miscalculated, the Total THC Problem. And it was published uh, January 10th, um, 2022 in the Cannabis Scientist magazine and authored by our old friend Marcus Rogan. And he argues in this article that um, if you're unfamiliar listener to, to this equation, it's, it's a really basic math uh, conversion when we, when we talk about um, converting THCA or CBDA in a flower and, and then converting that into the active ingredients THC and CBD after it gets heated. The, during that decarboxylation conversion, it loses mass. Those molecules lose mass. Um, and this, this is because our, well, the, the reason we need to use this calculation is our standard unit of measurement in cannabis is mass or percent uh, based on, on mass. And so um, what, what's happening, though, is the number of moles, a chemist will know this, the number of moles of active ingredients are staying the same. And so what Marcus is arguing is that if you have a one gram pure crystal of THCA, 
uh, with a thousand, that would be a thousand milligrams of THCA. Uh, if you use this equation, then now it becomes an 88% total THC, but you still have this crystal here that's pure. So how can it be 88%? Um, and he also kind of works through the math with uh, a high CBD, low THC type of flower that may or may not be close or that is close to the 0.3% threshold of legality. Um, or, you know, the, the difference between, you know, good hemp and the, the dangerous marijuana <laughs> number. And if we're using what he argues is the correct equation, then that flower might now fail to be legally hemp or, you know, CBD only. So anyway, um, I thought this was a really interesting article. Um, and I wanted to start with um, Miyabi. Is this the type of scientific conundrum that keeps you up at night? Uh, or, you know, given your work involving, you know, smoked versions of cannabinoids, you know, do you, is this the type of discussion you've had in your line of work uh, before? So it's definitely a topic to be discussed. I, I just want to say, like, Marcus is is correct in, in terms of how we are calculating um, how we are calculating what is theoretically available. The problem is then when you start to address what happens when you actually smoke, depending on whether you use a, a dab rig or if you're smoking using a Bic lighter. Some people use hemp wick lighters. Some people prefer J's. Like, you know, there's there's a large number of, of differences that go into smoking. Like, if people qualitatively know and understand that there's a difference between a bowl, a bong, a joint, a blunt. I mean, and if we take out, take blunt out of that, because if you introduce true tobacco, then you're introducing like a whole nother set of, of compounds there. But if we just stick with, if we stick with the main differences of even just between like using different temperatures, um, there's more that happens there than decarboxylation. And that's, that is what we, what we study. It is in fact, what keeps me up at night in a good way. And, um, I mean, there's a lot more that happens as well. So it's, it's complicated. It gets very complicated because it's not just one, it's not just a simple decarboxylation. It's not complete either, depending on what temperatures you end up using and for what amount of time you may end up still with some, um, non-decarb flour. It depends on what your process is that you're like, what the goal is at the, at the end of the day, if you're smoking or if you're making an extract to work with edibles, that's a little bit more controllable because you are preparing it usually in some sort of like processing laboratory. And I, I think that I'm not sure. I think that he's right in terms. If if we wanted to theoretically calculate total THC um, for the purpose of saying what is total in the plant that is theoretically available, he's technically correct, and that we should be changing it to this uh, new equation. I'm not sure if it makes a relevant change. That like I'm I'm not. It's not clear to me whether that difference is significant other than in the hemp industry, whether or not you would meet that cutoff. Um, but I think that 0.3% is ridiculously low, um, just as an opinion based on like the threshold of THC's um, potential, right? Because generally speaking, when people are talking about what would be the threshold or the dosage of THC, right? Like if we're going based, if we're going based on that, then we have to start like talking about discrete dosages within hemp and what percentage is there. I, I would argue that I think 1% is still well within the realm of something that is incredibly low 
in THC that if you were to use a product that was 1% THC, it would have the physiological potency more comparable to hemp than that in terms of what, what the human experiences. So, um, yeah, I think, I guess just to wrap it up, Marcus is right. And, and theoretically that's true. If we talk about smoking and we want to split hairs about what actually happens when people are smoking, it gets way more complicated than that. Um, and there's tons of losses to the environment and to like losses of absorption that I don't think are worth calculating. I, I think it's interesting for us scientists, but I'm not sure if it's relevant for anyone else. <laughs> right. And I think too, you know, Nigam, I was going to ask you what you thought people's general, people being consumers at a store, uh, what their general understanding of these numbers on the label mean, you know, does that make a, uh, is that a deciding factor in their, you know, purchase decisions? So I'm trying to think how to approach this question, Amber. I, I guess I'll just start with your question about the consumer in the store. So there are different kinds of consumers but when we're talking about a, let's talk about California, that's where I live. Um, when we're talking about a recreational uh, dispensary, oftentimes a consumer is seeking uh, THC. So there can, there is a, a subsect of the consumer, recreational consumer in California that are really, really after the THC. They'll literally go to the counter and say, if they want flour they'll or they want to concentrate, they'll say, what is the highest THC flower you have? And then they'll just buy it. Or what is the highest THC flower you have in this price range? What is the highest THC concentrate you have in this price range? So for those folks, um, and for companies who cater to those folks, and there's a lot of them in, in California and, and I think other big rec markets, uh, then sure, then they, they love Marcus's equation and... Of course, they, they want to use that. Why not, right? So, um, but I think uh, I, I'm going to say a similar thing to what Miyabe said, that it's a lot more nuanced overall. So we also have um, consumers who are interested in the ratios of other cannabinoids. And I know we're going to talk about CBN in a minute, so I'll save my ratio talk for that. But um, so I, I think there's implications there as well. And I think... Uh, you know, uh, Julie would be able to speak to it better than me, but um, I, I think just the standardization is really important because we talk about, you know, if you're a consumer and, and maybe you have some certain sensitivity or some certain preference, especially if you're a medical consumer, um, you know, when you're traveling or going to a different place, I, I think it's important that your state reported levels uh, are going to be comparable in in uh different places so um th those are some kind of some kind of top line thoughts but uh there definitely are those group of consumers that, that are chasing that thc yeah number. absolutely and again it kind of comes down to that potency versus concentration um usage of language and i actively never try to use the word potency in my work. And I get a lot of clients push back. Well, I just want a potency test. What are you talking all fancy about these cannabinoids? Um, 
<laughs> so Julie, you work with a lot of producer processors or and, and testing labs as clients. Um, you know, how often do you have to explain this math to people? You know, do they understand it? Um, you know, and how well, <laughs> you know, is, is this something that you think um, might actually affect, uh, you know, people's day-to-day work if they, they change this math equation that we're using? Uh, let's see here. Um, do people understand it that are not scientists and also some scientists? No. (laughs) In fact, sometimes when I'm working with a new hire or I'm interviewing a scientist, sometimes I will give them the equation and ask them to explain it to me. I'll give them the structures and then I'll give them the equation and I'll be like, why do you think this is the equation to see if they can figure it out? Um, do you lose them after? Is that when you tell them they're not a client anymore? Like, is that like the first test? <laughs> it's usually when I'm interviewing or helping bring on someone for a client, and then I just it's, it's a good it's a good uh, measure of where they are because it's kind of a fundamental thing, right? If you look at the structures and you look at the, you can it's absolutely fundamental sort of, sort of figure it out. Um, but I would say generally, a lot of people don't understand it. I think. A lot of people that work in labs sort of understand it because it's been explained to them. It's in most regulations. Um, but clients don't, I mean, most clients don't care. I mean, I mean, most, I guess, producer processors, growers, they care about getting the highest THC number, THCA number, because that's how their product is valued right? The higher, higher percentage is higher money, period. I I hate to say that that's, I haven't seen as much of a shift in that as I would have hoped. Right. So yes, that's unfortunate. Um, I think that the, uh, and I'm trying to remember where this equation came from. I think it, I think it actually came out of maybe one of the standards organizations uh, someone had proposed this as a as a way to I I guess for me what I struggle to understand is what is the purpose of this equation why why did they propose it and why what what are they trying to convey or provide to consumers through using this equation. Right. No, and I think that um, that's a really good point. I have no idea where this equation originated from either. I mean, it is you know, it makes sense once you kind of sit down and look at it and know about mold to mass conversions. Um, but it also doesn't make sense, which is Marcus's whole argument. Um, and we're, we're not taking into the account the, yeah. the mass loss, uh, which, you know, if we, if I was giving a gen chem test, this, this would not be the equation. This would be incorrect. <laughs> but that, ma- right. but again, that mass loss is only if you're dealing with a THC crystal isolate. Because right, if you're right. dealing with anything else, like flour or anything that contains terpenes, there's an additional incredible mass change. I wouldn't even say mass loss, but mass change or alteration that like happens. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about THC crystal isolate, I feel like it comes yeah. from a demonizing of, of THC. It's like, we need to know how much total yeah. psychoactive. <laughs> 
Well, I think it comes back to the regulations, right? And, um, you know, Washington State, where I'm located, has this equation written into our rule set. And so there are policy implications, uh, you know, that are widespread. Um, Did you want to comment on that, Jehan? I mean, you do a lot of thinking about policy affecting science and vice versa. You know, is, is Marcus just like an overachiever here and like letting little things like correct math? bother him or, you know, should we really change all of the rules? I don't know how many other states, jurisdictions have this equation, but certainly it would require a a process in Washington if we were going to change. So I think we we all, you know, as a friend of many of us, Marcus Rogan, very talented chemist, smart guy. And like all of us at some point, we've been lured to the the rocky shores by the sirens of trying to do the the right thing. And (laughs) You know, there's this issue that that keeps coming up with science and society. There are things that people are doing that are stupid, incorrect, and they don't care. And then you tell them that they're doing that thing that they think is stupid and don't care about, that they're doing it wrong. They're going to have the same enthusiasm before and after you tell them that about that thing. And so I feel that it's going to be difficult to convey that to people. Because remember, we live in a time in the cannabis space where, one, it's a patchwork of regulations and standards. Uh, two, before we even talk about what to do with the raw data, the, your one cannabis chemist to another can't even agree over what detector is best to use. Is it UV? Well, it depends on your sample. Is it tandem aspect? Like people get in arguments and like throw papers at each other at conferences over this thing. So I feel like, you know, if we want this to catch on in a regulatory manner, it has to be simple because I've done regulatory inspections. I still assist with them from time to time. And I don't go in there with a Sherlock Holmes like magnifying glass, like, okay, one, two, three. They have four extra molecules of THC in this product. Shut down the factory. Um, You know, there are things in place to make these processes run. ISO accreditation, for example, for method validation. If people's methods are validated by an international body, I mean, who cares what some non-peer-reviewed magazine says? How no matter how smart and important it is. It's not, it may not be just seen, it's not, it's not reached, it's not, you know, in Rolling Stone or whatever people use to guide their policy these days. Um, that, that was a joke, listener. But, you know, um, this, things to help this catch on would be um, product manufacturers sourcing biomass, as Marcus eloquently talks about. You know, you might be paying for THC that isn't there, but then you're like basing a product line on. You're like, oh my gosh, I, you know, 1% loss of THC on one gram of cannabis doesn't really matter, but on kilos, it could really start to, to add up. Um, if we start getting taxed uh, on these products with banking laws on the amount of THC, I have a theory. My hypothesis is that as soon as we start taxing THC levels, the average potency, sorry, concentration <laughs> of THC will drop by like 10%. Nothing will be above like 15% THC. Like gone are those days of those unicorn plants. Um, the, the other way it's going to get enforced, I think, or adopted is because of law enforcement using it. And I mean every agency, whether it's the DEA, whether it's uh, the agriculture departments, if they're using a test to say your hemp is actually 0.32%, uh, sorry, you're going to jail or we're confiscating this or whatever, then you're going to care about it. Um, but if law enforcement is using the inflated test to find inflated values, what is your te- what is doing it the right way matter? It matters how it's being enforced. I think people are going to play to that. Um, and and I, that you know I'm, I'm an ex- expert witness. I'm dealing with like four court cases right now, 
And three of them have to do with interpreting testing results. And so is this something we're going to talk about? Absolutely. But we're going to ask the question, why are you comparing a method that law enforcement is using to a method that's required by regulations and then busting someone using a different method when there's a widely adopted method in that jurisdiction for testing? So I think we have to be careful about how we implement things, especially um, given that people don't understand it. So you know, I feel like we still have a lot of education to do if we want people to adopt this. Um, so, you know, and then, you know, when we think these course corrections, I think are normal for industry. And there, you know, the last thing I'll just say about this is there was a time in my life where when I first started looking at product safety and I've done labeling studies, a product label stopped being a product label. It was a rabbit hole of traceability and information. And how are we deriving this value? Is it an average? What's the variance? And then after enough time, it just became a product label again, being like, yeah, okay, it's probably mostly accurate. And I associate that label with an effect, right? Like, so um, if 10 milligrams is really eight milligrams, we still are associating, looking at that in terms of a potency, not a concentration of a product. And I think it still has utility for looking at adverse events, as long as it's standardized and reproducible. And so I think uh, that's, that's kind of where I want to think about this is, um, the, the public health issue with cannabis products in the regulated market has not been a total disaster, in my opinion. The recall plans work. We can track products. Products People are looking at products and what they're labeled as in terms of concentration, and they're able to get a reasonable approximation of a potency. At least that's how I you know, um, assess the situation from my perspective. I think these course corrections have to come down the line, but my fear would be they're adopted by law enforcement but not required to sell a product on the market. And so that could create a discrepancy. Gotcha. I think we should just use moles. <laughs> force people force people to understand molarity. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that would be great because then I wouldn't have to translate my animal work anymore. Just be like, it's one micromolar of THC. Okay, what is there go. not to understand? Yeah, there's 10 to the 17th molecules in this jar. <laughs> <laughs> that will be really easy to Conceptualize understand. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're going to transition to talking about a few other kinds of cannabinoids or one in particular. Uh, our third article is called The Curious Case of CBN and Sleep. This was uh, recently posted on the Project CBD website, and it's also a bit of a review of another uh, journal article that was behind a paywall that was published uh, fall of 2021 in Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. Um, the, the author of this article basically uh, reviews what the human research shows uh, that's out there on the CBN, this cannabinoid that people people being marketers, product developers, your friend, your bud tender down the street. You know, I've heard numbers and numbers of times that CBN um, is good for sleep. And years ago, one of the first uh, cannabis science conferences I attended, um, one of the presenters worked for a vaporizer company. Their company set up a trial where they had CBN, THC, and CBD in different ratios in these vaporizer pens. And they had a pretty well set up study. Um, and they looked at people's use of these pens. And the, the people using the pens did not know what the cannabinoid ratios were. And they were using them for various endpoints that people might want to use cannabis for. Sleep, pain, relief, anxiety, those kinds of things. 
And I don't remember anything about the talk except for that CBN did not help people sleep. The high CBN ratio vaporizers did not help people sleep. And, And so that's always kind of stuck in my mind. Every time I hear somebody say that, I'm always kind of looking for reference, right? I mean, that's what scientists do. And according to this article, there really isn't a lot of references that actually support this argument. Um, I'm going to start with you this time, Nagam. You often like to discuss the validity of, you know, the research or the the end number in papers. What are your thoughts on the nine different studies that this kind of summarized at the end of the article? Yeah, thanks for that question, Amber. So uh, I'm glad you're highlighting that. So for the listener, you can read this whole article or you can just scroll down to the end and it just has a summary of the studies, which it's... um, for, for all of us here, and for the listener who knows how we like to analyze this kind of stuff, um, I, we like to go to the source, right? So it's, um, I encourage the, the listener to do the same thing. Look at the source material, assess the validity for yourself, and then, yeah, go back and compare it to what the author thinks. But um, no reason to read stuff through two and three lenses when you can just go to the root, right? So anyway, speaking to that, I'm going to keep it kind of short. Uh, for my opinion, and and it's I, I think kind of backed up by this. Um, Amber's already said uh, what she saw in this real life work with with humans and in these CBN vape pens that, that it didn't have an effect. So what eight of these nine studies say is the same thing. Now um, seven of the eight were done pre nineteen eighty three. Now I'm not disparaging that uh, a lot of the cannabinoid work uh, that we have and that we still uh, use w- was done decades ago. But I think there is um, something to having work done in the modern context. Part of the reason, maybe the biggest reason is just straight up prohibition mentality. Um, so I think that's pretty obvious, but anyways, uh, again, trying to be a little bit short with it. If you look at this ninth study, and let me just uh, call it out directly. So this is, um, the it was done in Australia, West Australian Sleep Disorders Research Institute in the University of Western Australia. It's 2021, Dr. Jennifer Walsh, and um, it's 24 volunteers. And this is the only study of the nine that found an improvement in sleep and The difference here is that they're combining THC, CBD, and CBN. Now, these other ones, eight, just just briefly, are are mostly just straight CBN, either edible or or intravenously, or CBN uh, and THC combined. So, um, my kind of, when Amber put this uh, on the show notes, uh, uh, you know, a couple days, a couple weeks ago, I've kind of been mulling on it and thinking, you know, what is my thought about CBN? And my just personal belief from experience, from reading, from, from uh, some, some pharmacology work is that it can be helpful for sleep in combination with other cannabinoids and or terpenes. And what do you know? Read this article and that's the, the only evidence we have is in combination with THC and CBD, and probably at a, at a certain uh, ratio, there's some effect noticed. Another thing, uh, which I'm sure Miyabe is going to hit on, is 
everyone's uh, everyone's different, right? So just because one ratio is working for someone doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. Um, and and last thing I'll say, um, we've done a lot of uh, of product surveys uh, for from products on the market in a variety of states um, at our firm, and what we've seen is that. In CBN pro- CBN containing products, it's really not that common, I- at least in California and, and some of these other uh, uh, kind of developed states on the West Coast, that you don't necessarily see like a CBN edible for sleep. You see an edible for sleep that is CBN, THC, CBD. So people who are actually developing these products, they're, you know, they're not doing clinical trials, but they're trying them. Their employees are trying them before they put them on the market. Um, they've kind of come to understand over the last several years since CBN has become commercially available um, in markets like California, how to blend it, what ratio um, to, to achieve an effect that the consumer likes. So I think there's still a lot of ambiguity here, but uh, I've kind of expressed my thought, uh, just to say it concisely, CBN alone Maybe not. CBN with THC, maybe not. CBN, THC, CBD, maybe so. Yeah, so I was going to go next to you, Miyabi, as well. You know, do you, why do you think it was originally marketed this way? Is there any, you know, do you think CBN really can help in this way? So I, I love that Nigam knew I was going to talk about endocannabinoid system. <laughs> The endocannabinoid system variability or the or the differences between every single person and their endocannabinoid system because um, it is huge. And then when we're talking about sleep, sleep it sleep is a very, very like multivariable problem. Like the, the reason why someone has problems with sleep, it, it can be a million different reasons for different people. And for some people, it's chronic pain. For other people, it's like night terrors. For some people, it's anxiety. Their brains can't turn off. Some people just have restlessness in their in their body that's like unexplainable. And so there's many different ways why people can't sleep. I I think and in terms of answering the question of why, why do I think CBN was or was originally um, called the sleep cannabinoid or why why it gained traction that way. There's a, a mouse a study in mice from, I believe, the 70s, definitely pre, pre-80s, um, that was done looking at CBN as a control and um, CBN analogs or synthetic, like new pharmaceutical molecules that are very, very similar to CBN. And they were looking at sleep um, in mice. And the, they weren't looking at whether or not CBN and these other CBN similar lookalikes would put the mice to sleep. They actually put the mice out with a tranquilizer beforehand. Um, I think it was a barbiturate of some sort. So they actually tranquilized the mice to put them to sleep, but then also gave the mice CBN and these analogs. Um, And it was found that CBN and all of the CBN similar molecules increased the length of sleep of these mice when they had already been given a tranquilizer. So there's there's a number of things that could be going on. That's why it's, it's complicated because the for, the easiest thing to just point to is that maybe CBN decreased the the metabolic the metabolic rate of the mice like the mice should like break down the tranquilizer. Basically, did CBN make it so that the tranquilizer lasted in the mice for a longer amount of time, and that that might have been one of the reasons. Um, 
It's also possible that it did work in synergy or that it worked together with the tranquilizers. And this is just one study in mice, and I I haven't seen it repeated um, either in animal models or in human models. And I think my my thought process is very similar to what what Nigam was thinking, which is that I think that there's promise um, in the entourage effect as a larger encompassing way of describing just chemodiversity and really complex combinations. Um, I believe that strain specificity is a thing. I believe that specific strains of cannabis are able to have specific effects. And I believe that that comes from these really complicated mixtures of terpenes and cannabinoids and other molecules, flavonoids, um, other, other bioactive fatty acids that might be present depending on, you know, what method you're, you're using. Um, I believe that those can have real effects that are that are different from isolated CBN. And I think that we still have so much more to go <laughs> to being able to say that, you know, this is definitely for this. But I think qualitatively, from what people have been seeing in the market, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but on the West Coast, there are tons and, not tons, but more and more formulations that are more complex Um coming to, to market where people are starting to sort of piece this apart uh, more and they are testing it, even though it isn't showing up in something as rigorous as a controlled like clinical trial. These are things that huge numbers of people are reporting. And um, yes, there's a placebo effect, but at, at the same time, I think that there's enough there that it's worth, it's worth being interested in. I'm certainly interested in it. You're, uh, I can confirm there are, I mean, we're, you can buy an edible in California with CBN, CBD, THC, THCA, and CBDA in it. I mean, in a little cap. Right. I, I think that that's There's incredible. Multiple. I think that so, that's so interesting yeah. because it's, especially when, you know, you think about how these things are interacting. Like my background is how like the molecules interact with the protein targets at a molecular scale. And when you think about how complex these interactions can be, when they're together in combination. And then you think about how, how little we understand about what that actually does downstream to the human body. It, it, perf- it I think it's the entourage effect to me is so real. Um, and I know that there's still a long way to go to proving exactly which combinations like can provide that. But I, I think initially I would say that like CBN in a complex mixture has, has potential, but, Again, similar to what you were saying about it as an isolate, I don't, I don't know that I've seen anything about CBN by itself as a molecule on its own having um, any sedative effect, like putting people to sleep or affecting sleep quality. Yeah, I mean, you bring up, a, well, similar to what the article mentioned, is that it's difficult to actually get pure CBN. Uh, to do some of these kinds of studies. Um, Julie, can you help us understand kind of why it's so hard to get something that's a pure molecule like this? Particularly CBN, I think, has some chemistry reasons why it might be difficult to purify. I'm not sure if this is really my area of expertise, um, but all of the cannabinoids are very similar structurally. So even when you're doing um, synthesis, you know, there's going to be, there's a a certain yield, and then you're sort of stuck with the the situation of actually trying to physically separate them, right? So that kind of goes back to chromatography. Um, If it's naturally derived, 
you know, it's, there's thousands and thousands of molecules. You're in the same situation of trying to concentrate it and isolate it. And those are really, it's, it's extremely difficult to do because you have analogs, other cannabinoids, other molecules that look very similar, that act very similar for any of the techniques that you might use to actually try to isolate just one molecule. So it's just very hard to do. And unfortunately, we can also see very low. So if this was happening 50 years ago, we might say, yeah, we have we have a pure compound. Um, but now because we have technology and detectors that can look very, very low, we see these minute little impurities um, that maybe we wouldn't have seen. So it's really challenging when you can look at, you know, picomoles um, easily, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so that also makes it really challenging. Um, right. Yeah. One of the things that I experience a lot working in the cannabis industry are friends and family asking me all kinds of questions, right? I bought this thing online. Is it going to work? Um, and I've been in conversations with people, not particularly about CBN, but you know, indica and sativa conversation and how that's not scientifically relevant. And, and people argue with me that when I smoke something called indica, I feel this way. And I, when I smoke something called sativa, I feel different. Um, so, Jayhan, do you have any experience with this in terms of, you know, what's your response to people who say, oh, but I bought this tincture that has CBN and it's really helping my sleep? I would have a couple different responses depending on who it was. Um, one might be great. Sometimes people go their whole lifetime without ever experiencing a placebo effect. Um, good for you. Um, but I think other, you know, the more serious question is, is how do you know it's the CBN as, as we've all alluded to? And, you know, and I appreciate this discussion that the author has laid out here and translating this, this complex issue. And I agree with like folks like Nigam, Sad, Miyavi, and Julie as well. And I think some of the, the, you know, the research needs to be updated here and reproduced. Um, but there was something, there was a hemp seed that got stuck in my tooth reading this otherwise tasty article that I, that I couldn't let go. And one was a, a quote from the article where... The author says, I don't want to put too much emphasis on all the preclinical CBN research that's been done in animals because what occurs in a rodent all too frequently translate poorly to what happens in an animal. All too frequently with no reference, no bears. I'm like, was there a paper published comparing the effects in animals to translating it to humans? I'm pretty sure if you're giving animals a drug and they all die, that's fairly predictive for what's going to happen in other mammalian models. Um, but there are caveats to there. Do, do animals have a developed enough cerebral cortex to experience a hallucination and maybe animal models, certain animal models aren't great at look. We don't really have a good animal model. I believe we have a head twitch model for looking at, you know, are, are rats experiencing a psychedelic experience? Um, so I feel like there's this whole body of evidence out there in animal research and, and he's right. There are issues with translating it, but it mostly happens from non-scientists who look at animal research. They're like, this happened in an animal, so I'm going to base an entire product line off this one study. Are you, are you using the animal research right? There is animal research that's absolutely predictive of issues with the liver, issues in development, um, the whole toxicology field. Where it gets a little hazy is predicting dosing because we haven't designed 
uh, the scientific community over decades um, animal models that are really great at predicting dosing. We're looking at effect. We're looking at mechanisms. We're going to reproduce ability. So, you know, I just felt like that kind of rubbed me the wrong way when I'm reading this article because when I look at the human studies, it's like, what are you talking about? The, you know, the, the human studies that he mentions here about being high quality, I mean, that would be like, okay, he had no comparator group of another drug. It was short term. Um, I, that, what, what is the definition of quality? So I think having a, some extra words in this article to define what the author meant by high quality, what, what is the standard of high quality for cannabis? <laughs> yeah, that, that's different than high quality for like pharmaceutical research. So I think, you know, defining that would have been helpful. Some of these studies only had five or six participants. Hey, um, highest quality study. <laughs> I've done, um, I've done one of those studies, like <laughs> my yeah, living room. I, <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm, in all seriousness, it's very difficult to study cannabis. So I, I do think it's like, I'm grateful and appreciative for seeing all it, but I totally agree. And I wanted to just mention something that you brought up about the translation from animal to to human. And then I, I did, I come from in vitro, which is one step below animal and then in silico, which is in the computer, which is one step below anything real and tangible. And it's it's fascinating, I think, like taking that, that information and extrapolating it into human studies. And I think that's kind of where we're, we're at this constant because science is becoming more and more accessible and it's a good thing. We're still at this constant, um, a new wave of, of not even arguing, but of, of regulating who is interpreting this research and like the types of opinions and the way in which you go about interpreting it and then stating your opinion. Cause all scientists state our opinions very tentatively uh, we're trained to, we're trained to give our opinion with the the proper predisclosure that we don't know anything. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point. Um, and I think you know my biggest takeaway from this article was really you know the marketing in the cannabis space has really, in my opinion, gotten ahead of the actual science and. You know, we're going to end this, I think, with the way we end every topic of, re- of cannabis research is more research is needed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we should be allowed to say that anymore in publications. <laughs> Just save the word space. <laughs> but then how would you continue to get the funding? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, listeners, I think that's going to wrap up our popular literature coverage with um, you know, wasting all those words that we just did. And we'll be back after a short break with our rapid fire science section. to discuss a couple of papers today for our rapid fire science section. And our first one is entitled Psychedelics Alter Metaphysical Beliefs from Nature Scientific Reports. This was a collaboration between some UK, Australian, um, US scientists. Um, The main author was Christopher Timmerman. Uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, who's done a lot of work in this space, is also an author. And it discusses, uh, well, I was... Uh, regretting a tiny bit choosing this article yesterday uh, once I was going through it and thinking about discussion questions. But 
after going through it again and kind of thinking about it less as a scientist and more philosophically, I thought it was uh, pretty interesting. And I definitely learned a lot because this is not my area of expertise. But basically, they, they look at the nature, well, the area of metaphysics, first of all, kind of addresses, you know, small things like our nature of reality, uh, consciousness, free will, and, and how you place yourself and your beliefs kind of in those large um, cultural, uh, it has religious overtones as well. Um, and basically, this article is saying that um, metaphysical beliefs have never really been measured in, in regards to psychedelic use and changes in metaphysical beliefs have, have yet to be measured in this regard. And so they went about trying to do that with some surveys and then allowing people to have a psychedelic experience or I guess maybe more than one. And their comparison group, this was a little hard for me to understand, but their comparison group was a six-week course of escalatopram. I can't pronounce um, antidepressants very well. Um, so that was kind of the first thing I wanted to, to ask this group was, is that a good comparison for, uh, you know, a psychedelic experience is a six week course of an antidepressant. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I guess I'll just throw that question to Jehan first, and then we can talk a little bit more about maybe the, the philosophical aspects of it. Oh, absolutely. Um, is it, is it a good comparison? you know, it, it, it depends on what your <laughs> viewpoint is. So, you know, this study is looking at how different things that are interacting with serotonergic signaling systems, the serotonin receptors in the brain and other systems as well, can impact um, our beliefs, sort of, can it lead to temporary identity theft, where your what you value might shift for a while? Um, but are there other factors there that might influence like cultural reinforcement, or, or things like that. Um, and so is this a, is it a good comparator? I think so, uh, because this is a newly created questionnaire. It's a newly created form. Um, they didn't really say how they developed it, why they chose the criteria, but I think it's a very cool um, course. And, and if you haven't taken a biostats class, good for you. I'm so happy for you because they are terrible. Doctors, take them. They have to take one as well in medical school. I've had to take them. Um, you know, they're very useful, but, but it's, it's, they're very, it's not a lot of fun. What they didn't provide here, which I think would have been helpful would have been the overall distribution because, you know, what are the rates of other drugs being used? Um, what are, um, you know, the distribution of DMT users versus psilocybin versus LSD versus all at the same time, you don't really get that kind of, um, distribution and, and a clear distinction between who is naive and who is not. So if you have a naive drug person, um, you know, they might respond differently. You know, an, a, an antidepressant might feel like a religious experience for someone who's never had one before. Um, and, and I, you know, it's a little, a little bit off, but I just want to read a couple questions, um, items used for the scale. And I just want to throw a couple out there cause they're fantastic. So this is in the supplemental data. They have a little click to the table. Um, Here's, here's uh, some items extracted from their fatal determinism subscale from the free will and determinism questionnaire. My future has already been determined by fate. Uh, what will be will be. There's not much you can do about it. Um, you know, the strength of mind can always overcome the body's desire. I feel that on a higher level, all of us share a common bond 
all life is interconnected. Um, they also talk about uh, exploratory factors, the metaphysical belief questionnaire. Um, the universe obeys a unifying principle, which is beyond any possible material or scientific explanation, which is categorized as a non-naturalistic view. Um, there's other things like there's just one primary reality. Um, there are two separate realms of existence and things like that. So the, the type of questions that they are extracting from existing questionnaires over the years is, is quite fascinating. Yeah, I found that really interesting as well. Um, they they had some figures here that kind of um, created a linear relationship uh, almost between shifting uh from materialist beliefs towards non-physicalist beliefs after psychedelics use. And this persisted four weeks and six months after their experience. Um, you know, and it's hard for me to, you know, what's the takeaway from this linear relationship? I mean, it, looking at those dots, I'm not sure if that is a line or a linear relationship to me. But again, I'm one of those people who's never taken a biostats class. So, uh, so um, you know, Amber, just to jump in there. So let's, let's just talk about it just for a second. So for the statisticians listening to this, all two of you um, <laughs> say that they did Bonferroni adjustments here. And so they adjusted for multiple comparisons, but they didn't do a subsequent test to test the results of their test. So usually you you can do like a Benjamin Hopfer comparison. You can do a sensitivity. So you use your analysis to connect everything and see what their relation is. And then you can use other subsequent tests to say, well, how sensitive is this? How, how important is this signal? Are we just zooming in too closely so we zoom back out? Um, but what's great is they didn't, um, they didn't start off with a normal distribution of responses. They, that was not in their mindset was, oh, 95% of the people are going to respond this way and we're going to have just small groups out here. So when they set up this analysis, they tried to adjust for multiple factors, uh, multiple comparisons. But again, it's not clear how they really chose what those were. Yeah, I I will say that I wish that there that they had a control group that didn't experience mental health symptoms or that didn't fall under a category of having like some form of like struggle with mental health because. When you're talking, all of those questions that you're mentioning in the supplemental are basically like my favorite topics over like, those are my, those are like my favorite dinner topics, like great small talk. I'm really fortunate. My wife likes to talk about things like that because most people, like when I met, went back way when I was dating, it was probably just a lot for, for people. It was a, a good reason why I, I didn't go on that many second days. But, but I, I love the, like that kind of questions. And the, but the one thing I will say is that I feel like people who are atypical or neurodivergent, generally speaking, like think about those types of questions in a different context. Like if you struggle with your mental health, you are going to have a different perception of reality and existential. And maybe, maybe that's just me putting that on to all the people that I have met and talked to in my own personal community, which happens to be like highly atypical, creative neurodivergent people. But I, I think it's, I just wish they had a, a control, like a typical control. Um, Cause it would be real. I think the findings are really interesting because there's this, the fact that there is this shift in, in a belief system of something as, as foundational as your reality or your, like, life's place or all the living things place in the universe and whether or not fate is determined. And the fact that it is altered by, you know, the serotonin system is incredible. And there's, there's a good amount of stuff that, 
is, you know, there's a good amount of stuff out there on the serotonin system involved in what they call mysticism or, or oceanic boundlessness, which I would argue contributes to this, but has also been associated with positive physical health outcomes. So I think that all of that is is still relevant. Uh, and I, I, I think that the study is really cool and that there should be more like it and in, in deeper and more in depth. I agree with Miyabi. And I think part of the reason they got such great data was they asked fantastic questions. Like the way they designed it seems really good. I hope other people use their questionnaire and from a qualitative perspective, um, great article. Well, thanks, guys. Um, we are running a little short on HLI time, so I'm going to move on to our last paper. Uh, as much as I would love to philosophize all day with you, a group, about all of this. Um, so our, our last paper today is entitled Large Scale Whole Genome Resequencing Unravels the Domestication History of Cannabis Sativa. So this is from the journal Science Advances, and it was an international collaboration with a whole bunch of authors. And, you know, in more layperson speak, they basically suggest that uh, cannabis did not, in fact, originate in Central Asia, as is commonly cited, um, and in fact comes from East Asia and China, uh, what is now China. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and start with Nigam here. Are you going to be changing any of your PowerPoint slides about the history of cannabis based on this article? <laughs> well, uh, lo- luckily for me, uh, my PowerPoint slides are very applied these days. So um, we're really, you know, working with with the products we have on the market and, and what's happening with those. But um, yeah, you know, just as um, just as a cannabis person and as a person who loves plants and uh I, I just found it so interesting. Um, as you said, Amber, we're, we're a little short on HLI time, but I want to just say a few kind of like top line things that I thought was really interesting in this article. So one was um, they show so, some dates and in, in the progression of cannabis spread across the earth. So they're showing, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, got an, uh, a margin of error of a thousand years or whatever, but they're, they're showing how cannabis spread across the earth from, as you're saying, uh, Eastern Asia to um, Europe, to North America, to South America, to um, Africa. And, and it's really cool. You know, I think in the cannabis industry at large, about as far back as we go is we say, okay, well, we have our modern cultivars. And then those came from selective breeding of landrace strains. And before landrace, it's just a black box of whatever, you know? So this uh, article takes you on a really cool journey prior to that black box, right? And it also discusses different types and, and when the different types, you know, the hemp fiber type versus the drug type came to different continents. And I'm not going to read uh, all these dates off right now, but for folks who are interested in, in the history of it, I, I thought it was so cool. And the other thing that I just wanted to highlight, um, which I think... Uh, is is kind of known but it but it's worth saying this article reinforced it is that um well, well let me approach it in a little bit different way uh so we have this thing in cannabis cbd versus thc we already talked about it with the hemp laws and all this so um one tidbit i thought was so cool here is they were saying from a genetic basis that the plant itself uh cbda synthase uh, actually outcompetes THCA synthase. So for folks who don't know, we have CBG, uh, CBGA, which is kind of like the parent cannabinoid, 
which uh, the plant is turning into CBDA and THCA, which then when you, as we spoke about earlier, decarboxylate it, or, you know, Mark Strogan's article, uh, then you're getting the molecules that are actually entering your body, right? So uh, it, it was cool to see that the plant itself is doing, uh, it actually prefers CBD, and it makes sense why some of the land race strains or some of what they call feral strains um, had a higher, um, it, it makes sense genetically now why we're seeing uh, the higher levels of CBD or CBDA and why um, folks over time who desired THC and in the prohibition era where it was being sold um, for largely for euphoric purpose, um, while why it was selectively breeded and why we have all these high THC strains now. So um, those are just some like top line takeaways. Uh, definitely a dense article if you're not a geneticist, but still some, some very cool yeah, takeaways. Um, I agree. It was very dense. Um, Jayhan, did you want to add some clarity to some of this <laughs> science? I'll add that. I'm so glad you said clarity because I feel like that's the word for this article. Um, for, for scientists and geneticists and people who are studying the origin of this plant, I think the article will be pretty clear. And I think you'll all soon start to see figure one with the map and the little cannabis blips in presentations coming to a cannabis virtual seminar near you. Um, what I think this is, is a weakness of this article, and it's not the author's fault, is that, um, is that it doesn't use the, ter- the common terms that we use for hemp. Um, because hemp is not just a textile plant that the ancient Hebrews were buried in shirts that it was made of. It is extracted for drug production. So I don't know where North American hemp falls into that because, you know, we're using antiquated terms to talk about something that's definitions are changing. And so I don't know if drug type feral or drug type is where 0.3% THC or CBD producing hemp would um, go. Um, so I feel like there need to be a little clarity on definitions, like literally hemp. We do not mean cannabis that is extracted for drug like CBD. We do not mean stuff that's used to derivatize uh, schedule one isomers like Delta eight THC or Delta 10 or, Lord knows what ever people are doing these days with beautiful, wonderful cannabis. Um, but I, I, so I feel like that, that you'll get a little confused listener if you go to this article and you're looking at it, but where this comes in helpful is, is in really understanding what is a textile plant versus one used for sourcing drug. And where this won't help is potentially if let's say you're a hemp cultivator and your THC limit is hot, your hemp is hot and you have to go to court and some saying, yeah, you're growing cannabis, you're growing illegal weed, it's 0.4% THC. And you say, well, look at the genetics, it's hemp. It might look like a cannabis producer because it still has a lot of the machinery for making cannabinoids there, even if they're being used in a different way. You know, the factory could still be on, and it could be making something else, but the factory is still there. And I think when I think of genes, and I think of proteins, I think of factories, machines, just, just conceptually. So um, hemp really has a unique profile in terms of what it produces in the end. Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well. And I don't understand enough about genetic manipulation, but I think there's a lot of potential impact on growers who are trying to make strains or varietals, whatever term you want to use to 
synthesize specific higher amounts of specific cannabinoids um, and understanding where these enzymes are and how they're turned on or turned off is obviously really fundamental to to that. Um, I do want to kind of just wrap up with one more question. I think I'm going to let Julie have the last word <laughs> on this. And it because it kind of comes down to what you were alluding to, Jehan, of the correct language and you know, the words that we use to describe these. Um, this paper is the first time I think I have seen I, this term basal, B-A-S-A-L, being, they, they subcategorized the, all of the cannabis that they sampled into four main types, basal, drug type, feral, drug type, and hemp type. And so, you know, Julie, do you think this is going to catch on in terms of how we categorize things and the language that we use moving forward, or are we still going to like just continue to use indica sativa and land race? <laughs> um, I hope not, but I'm not sure that this is going to catch on. I mean, there's, there's a fair number of articles, um, journal articles that have come up with their own classification systems, um, oftentimes based on some sort of, you know, uh, relationship to the ratio of cannabinoids, right? So, a high, high THC, low CBD, um, balanced, you know, is another term I've heard. Um, so I, I don't know what the best, I don't know what the best nomenclature is. I'm not sure that this will catch on. Um, because, you know, I think most people in the market really are very focused on the cannabinoids themselves. I, I, if I had to guess, I would think it would be something characterized potentially more, the chemo bar type of thing. Um, but that's just my guess. Um, I will say the one thing I, I did think about this article when I was reading it is um, I did like the, you know, figure one in the, the geographic map. I think that that has some really interesting implications. I recently realized that I probably wanted to be an archaeochemist. So, you know, how... You still can, Julie. <laughs> I'm too old. <laughs> So, you know, how, how this plant maybe has kind of spread in, in the type it was at certain times in history. Um, you know, there's some people now that are really doing some interesting work in terms of looking at, you know, artifacts and doing some chemical analysis on um, cannabis and, and uh, you know, other, you know, psychedelics, these sort of different brews that people had in different areas. So I think this could actually be a, a kind of a good tie-in for the people doing that kind of research. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. I, I said I, you were going to have the last word, but I did want to sort of conclude this discussion with a quote from the paper that really stuck with me was, the quote is, all feral plants studied here are not wild types, but historical escapes from domesticated forms which made me wonder if there really is any original slash land raised varieties left at all. Well, that's why they have such, you know, tough security requirements in the cannabis space with like concrete walls, barbed wire fences. You don't want any of the cannabis escaping into the wild. <laughs> it could be dangerous. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to have to wrap up our research discussion now, but um, let's take a short break and we'll come back with our game to wrap up the episode. Mark Hu and Aurora, 
we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. Welcome back, listener. Now it's time for today's game, which I'm entitling Psychedelic Research Psychout, but it's really a version of three truths and a lie. And today's winner will receive, uh, well, we're all just winners because we're advancing scientific knowledge. So what, how this game is going to work is I'm going to give you four uh, research titles uh, for papers that may or may not have actually been published. Three of them are real and one of them is fake. So you'll just have to figure out which one is not real. So I'm going to go ahead and start with choice A. The title is Brain Imaging During Psychedelic Experiences Demonstrates in Situ the Quantum Uncertainty Principle, a case study. So this is the act of, uh, the paper discusses the act of measuring the brain activity during psychedelic sessions, actually causes a change in the response from the study participants, which prevents the researchers from getting the data they really need therefore quantify or demonstrating the quantum uncertainty principle that I'm sure everyone is aware of that's listening. Uh, The choice B is lifetime use of psychedelics is associated with better mental health indicators during the COVID-19 pandemic. So basically having done drugs previously meant you weathered the pandemic better than others mentally. Choice C, psychedelic agents in creative problem solving, a pilot study where they quantified creativity and there was some positive relationship to levels of creativity and psychedelic use. Or D, psychoactive plant and mushroom associated alkaloids from two behavior modifying cicada pathogens. So this is uh, looking at pathogenic fungus that uh, live inside cicada insects and these fungus actually synthesize or contain psychedelic compounds. Participants, do you think it is A, brain imaging during psychedelic experiences demonstrates in situ the quantum uncertainty principle, a case study? Is it B, lifetime use of psychedelics is associated with better mental health indicators during the COVID-19 pandemic? Is it C, psychedelic agents in creative problem solving, a pilot study? Or is it D, psychoactive plant and mushroom associated alkaloids from two behavior modifying cicada pathogens? So I'm going to just go ahead and start with Jehan. Do you have a guess? Ooh, Ooh, so many guesses, so little time. I hope these are all real because I want to read all of them. So let me start with the first one. Uh, uh, Brain imaging, you know, measuring uh, the effects of psychedelics. Can researchers affect um, the effect? I mean, this is is an old thing. It seems plausible to me uh, because this is an issue in psychedelic therapy. So when I took my psilocybin training course for, for like therapy, they talked about how even your waiver that you give someone can affect their response to the treatment. Because if you're like, you, you need to sign here because you could have a life-changing experience and you, know, you might visit the bowels of the machine elf city and we're going to have to sign here. People might be like, holy crap. And they sit around waiting for this life-changing experience. I don't know if you know this, but sitting around waiting for a life-changing experience can cause anxiety. Um, the other one is, uh, so yeah, so I think that's real. There's all these little factors that can affect it. Like people say no one will have a true experience with DMT or other substances because of authors like Aldous Huxley with Doors of Perception. 
just being exposed to that artwork already gives you a preconceived like framework of how these drugs will behave. So um, I think that that is an aspect to lifetime use uh, for better mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, you know, psychedelics, right? Uh, was it the, the, the path to mastery is practice, right? So um, if you sit around for long hours of time waiting for something to be over, I mean, whether it's a plague or psychedelics, I think that can make sense. It's probably, um, there's a skill set there, I think, of, pers- of, of your perspective, of being patient, of, of you know, waiting something out maybe <laughs> that might, might blend well with psychedelics, but maybe not. Um, creativity and psychedelics, um, does it make you more creative or does you just feel like you're more creative? That one, uh, maybe come back to that one. Pathogenic fungus. I mean, gosh, if there's something that's pathogenic to an insect, we humans just love that stuff. Look at cannabinoids. Um, look at other things. Like if it kills a bug or it's pathogenic, why don't we should eat that? I think that's generally. <laughs> so four, I feel right now is, is believable. Three is the one without having more details. I'm going to stop there. Let other people present, get off my, my little hemp box. But I think three right now. Um, to me about creativity and psychedelics, I feel like that one's a little bit of a stretch because you might, there's, I think there's an issue there with actual creative output, someone who's already creative versus making you creative. Uh, that, that seems a, seems a little suspect. All right. Who wants to go next? Okay. Really quickly, just about D, the 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 psychedelic compounds in fungus. This is an interesting theory that I heard about via a fiction novel that caused the Salem witch trials. That that in Salem, oh. Massachusetts, there was an extremely wet um, year, and that there was fungus that looked like um, rye, like it it looked similar to rye, and that there it was possible that there were like psychoactive compounds in there and that that caused people anyways that's just totally sad, but it made me it made me think about that no, I Miyagi, like, you're, you're absolutely right like the, the bread was so moldy it was black and so it, it's based on a you know it's absolutely based on a true story but you think about how hungry people would be to eat mo- bread that was like black with mold and it had the ergotamines which is what lsd was synthesized from and so it would cause hallucinations but also cause ticks and like muscle spasms and so people be walking down the street after eating this bread like spazzing out and tripping like yeah so it's no wonder people thought they might have been like had witches in them as they're having involuntary muscle contraction as well as seeing things but yeah great point and and just a and super short side story to validate that miyabe uh first hand uh, i guess second second hand account uh that i believe uh prohibition era psychedelic chemists actually use that same thing when they were having trouble sourcing starting materials for LSD literally grew wheat and induced that same effect to get starting material in bulk. So (laughs) super duper real experience. I've tried the bread. (laughs) No, 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 I didn't do no, 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 no. I didn't, I didn't do it, but no, it's a real thing. People, you really, they use that to get the compounds is, you know, are these psychoactive molecules present in these fungus in, in sex cicadas, in cicadas? (laughs) I I think it's plausible. Okay. I'm going to wrap up my guess though, by just saying that I'm going to guess that B is not the real headline because, and I'll be disappointed if it is real, but I'm just making the assumption that everyone in my personal network would have messaged me this article if it, if it had, 
come out. So I'm going to assume that B is not, <laughs> is the fake article. All right. Good guesses so far. Uh, Nigam, you want to weigh in in your guess? Yeah. So, you know, for some reason, I feel like I've seen two of these three. And to be just clear, I I, I'm not Googling. Uh, so Amber didn't tell me any this. of this prior. No, no, no. <laughs> No, yeah, no, no. So the so two of the so so let me just say the um a I don't think I've seen, but that just seems like a a, a real study. It is the title. It's just it's a lot for Amber to make up. I think it's real. Um, B and C are the two that I think I've seen. We maybe even reviewed the <laughs> maybe, creativity maybe one that's before. Why on I the don't show. like it. Maybe we reviewed it. I was like, I already hate this article. <laughs> We did no. I recall we we I recall we did not have a favorable response. Okay, so then for me, um, I really want the cicada fungus psychedelic thing to be true, but that one seems I can see Amber just like making that up three nights ago. So I'm gonna guess that D is made. I might be All wrong. Right, so I'm gonna so guess. Far we have that a D guess for D. We have a guess for C, and we have a guess for B. Julie, do you oh want to do the tiebreaker okay. here? <laughs> I think I might be. Okay, so the alkaloids, I want that to be true, so I'm going to say it's true. Same with A. (laughs) So this is more of a wish list than maybe what I think is actually true. So A is great because I think the title is like, we did this study and didn't really find out any information, but the title makes it sound like we did something really cool. So I think that one might be true. Um, I think... I'm really between B and C being the fake one. <sighs> well, well, why do you think B is the fake one? B seems like, like is, it, is it just so seductive with its title? You're like lifetime use of psychedelics and COVID just, psychedelics, COVID. Like, <laughs> hmm. I, I don't. I think because it seems like how much of a like how many lifetime psych psychedelic users could you get to make a scientific study like how do you find them and then do the study it makes it like during during also the pandemic it makes me think like logistically that may have been a difficult thing to do but i'm not sure so i i'm gonna go with b it's the fake one okay well, we have guesses in, um, so I'm going to just kind of read some quotes from these papers and uh, narrow it down for you folks. So one of the quotes um, is, experience with psychedelic drugs was linked to increased positive effect and to personality traits that favor resilience and stability in the light of the ongoing crisis. So B was, in fact, true. <laughs> headline, it was no. a paper from yeah. May I'm of 2021. So I'm disappointed. <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> it was well, they don't time. want that... Uh... <laughs> They don't want that information getting out there because everyone's going to be like tripping all day. will make the pandemic easier. Well, it was published way back in May of 2021. That was only a year, less than a year into the pandemic. Okay, that's that's early early COVID. I think we reviewed it. (laughs) Yeah. You need to review it now. Oh, gosh. Yeah. This the psychedelics wear off after about so uh, fourteen next, months. It stops working. Um, that I'm going to so. read is tentative findings based on tests of creativity, on subjective reports and self ratings, and on the utility of problem solutions. Suggested that if given according to this carefully structured regimen, psychedelic agents seem to facilitate creative problem solving. 
All right. That was from 1996, actually. is an old study that you may have actually reviewed on this show. I'm wow. not sure. Um, <laughs> and right. then the final right. quote, wow. so, so C was true as well. Um, and uh, the other quote is, uh, psilocybin was among the most abundant alkaloids detected in this fungus species. Wow. So, <laughs> a wow. is actually the fake one. I did a good wow. job of making up a real <laughs> Wow, yeah, you toasted job. us. Nobody wow. got it. Wait, so nobody got, got it? Wow. So you beat us all? We're all the hell? Oh my gosh, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think I don't you know, we've played so many games on this show and I don't think the moderator has yeah. ever won. I don't think you the moderator maybe, maybe ever stumped everybody before. Uh, I, yeah, I don't think I, did I don't go think through we've a number a of sleep. iterations, but I th- you know, thought throwing in in situ is gonna throw you guys off. Yeah, that did. did throw me. <laughs> no, Amber. Amber, the thing that got me was that that was that did that was strong, but the thing that got me was a uh, colon, a case study. Yeah, like how, how did you like, make that up? This, this this is, that yeah, up, just you know? as Julie said, they're like, oh, it's a great title with like this is <laughs> this sounds just like a scientific paper, like you know. Yeah. <laughs> but they're like, we we have to get this thing published, so we got to give it a killer title. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Well, I want to thank everybody for playing our game today. I feel pretty validated about all the time I spent on it. (laughs) That's our show for today. I want to thank everybody for listening in whatever format you're accessing us. With all the podcasts out there, we appreciate your time and sharing with folks that you think might be interested as well. I'd also like to thank our guests, Julia Miyabi, for being a special guest today. And as well, the ever-present Nigam. I wish we could all get paid for this. <laughs> and Jehan, thanks for uh, letting me swap roles with you today. I, I hope I did everybody proud. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo, and to our mixologist, Dylan Aganjinan. And thank you to our podcast cover artists for crafting custom artwork for each episode. I want to thank um, everybody from Marku and Aurora and our sponsors for today. 